Hello to you all. A very quick note for me to say thank you for all the kind messages about our Robert Harris episode on Active Oblivion. We've got some wonderful guests for you in the weeks ahead as well. There's going to be James Holland, Christopher Hamill, Emma Wells, Orlando Figes. So do keep an eye out on our feed. Today, though, we've got another historical novelist for you. Damien Dibbon on his bright and very beautiful new book, The Colour Storm. He's talking to Violet today. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. This week we're visiting Venice in its Renaissance heyday. Damien Dibbon is an acclaimed novelist and today he is going to take us on a fascinating journey through one of the great years in Italian art, when Michelangelo was in Rome painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling and Titian's career was taking off in Venice. Your book is set in Venice, so before we go to your year, just tell us a bit about the research you did in Venice and your relationship with that city, because it's such a yeah. an extraordinary, specific, unique place. Yeah, I mean, Venice, for some unknown reason, is probably the place I've visited the most. It's, it's the first place I went to abroad. I remember when I was 11, sort of almost unbelievably, it was a, a school trip. Uh, uh, to Venice. I don't know quite how that happened. Um, and I fell in love with it then. And then, I don't know, at least every other year, I found myself in the city or pulled to the city or drawn to the city or there by mistake or whatever reason. And obviously, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a piece of living history. Um, it's so intact and you, the, the past is so incredibly tangible all around you and though obviously now it's visited by you know millions of people I've always found it really easy to get away from the hordes as it were and you know really sample the city as it was and just just walking you know crossing a canal and walking down a uh, a street you you're you're immediately in the past so it, it's kind of a ready-made time machine in that respect Mm, um, yeah. So now I'm going to ask you the big question, which is, um, of course, which year are we going to be visiting today? So we will be visiting uh, the year 1510 uh, and specifically 1510 in Venice. OK. And can you set the scene a bit for us? Just give us a little bit of general background. What's what's going on in Venice in 1510? In, in Europe as a whole, I would say this was a sort of time of great great change um and it is kind of you know it's the absolute sort of almost center point of what we call the renaissance why the world was changing was essentially in the sort of 1450s and uh, 60 60 years before you know the first great event which had been the the sort of sacking of what was constantinople and it meant that all the scholars uh you know because constantinople at the time was you know was really the, the center of kind of learning and uh, sort of academic thought and science and mathematics and everything 
and all the scholars uh, and uh, all the texts suddenly moved over to Italy. And a lot of them, you know, nearly everyone who arrived in Italy was sort of threading through Venice. It will come to that. So that was the first event. Then 10 years later, we have the invention of the printing press and suddenly books were being, uh, you know, that were had been put out in their kind of dozens or hundreds at the most were suddenly being produced in their thousands and soon to be millions. So suddenly you've got all this new information and you've got a way of this information being disseminated amongst you know the, the people of Europe. So uh, the whole way of thinking about things was just changing rapidly. Uh, and this was a time of sort of sudden global awareness as well. So ships were kind of setting sail. I mean, 10 years afterwards, we'd had the first um, circumnavigation of the, the, of the globe. Uh, and, you know, seafaring was becoming a much more, uh, it, it was sort of much wider spread. Ships were much bigger and safer and stronger. Um, so these three factors sort of produced this sort of great change in thinking. And this 1510 was when it was really kind of reaching its, its current peak of the, of the time. Uh, and a few years later, you, we would have the beginning of the Reformation, which was, you know, really as a, a, as a result of all this new way of thinking. Uh, and, you know, that would lead to wonders in some sense but sort of terrible trauma 150 years of war and uh you know but it was just it was the, it was the start of the modern age in both respects you know it was the start of you know all the sort of the science and the history and the sort of artistic endeavor that led to where we are now but also the start of so many kind of schisms in society and Venice was, of course, the one of the great yeah. centre, early centres of printing, wasn't it? They so, really adopted absolutely. printing. Absolutely. And Venice, <laughs> um, I mean, just very briefly, if I could say, you know, because the history of Venice is also so fascinating because the the set, the first settlers, they, they came um, to this lagoon and it was this sort of infested, you know, sort of damp, cold in the winter and sort of boiling in the summer lagoon. Um, not because it was central, but because it was a sort of, it was like a hideaway and it was to escape from wars. Uh, you know, this is sort of in the 800s and 900s. And they went first to Torcello, uh, which is an island just to, in the lagoon, just north of, of, the, of Venice itself. Um, and they, they went there as a refuge. Uh, but they, you know, these were seafaring people, they were traders, and gradually they kind of built this, this, you know, bit, piece by piece of civilization. And then um, Venice itself was constructed on a sort of piece of where, where the sea was kind of, the lagoon was, was very shallow. Uh, so essentially, no, you couldn't be invaded because of, uh, you know, big ships couldn't get in there. Uh, and into this, this shallow area, they sort of drove however many, millions and millions and millions of piles of, of timber uh, and constructed the city on it, you know, building the canals first. It was just an astonishing feat. And I, I think that's still the wonder when you go to Venice, just thinking this, this, you know, 
this was created for nothing in in in, in the most in in inhospitable part of the world uh this sort of wonderful thing arose so um gradually its position geographically it couldn't be more uh it couldn't be better placed because it was kind of you know the top of the mediterranean and all sort of trade from africa from asia just you know filtered across through the mediterranean and up through it through venice it was a kind of eye of a needle into the rest of europe and people of course became fabulously rich and this was the time when you know trade was really you know world trade was absolutely taking off i mean there'd always been world trade i mean there was sort of trade in in roman times world trade but but it really was it really did become global it was you know during the uh, 15th century uh, and venice i'm sure was the richest place on earth uh, and as a result the buildings that kept going up were just more magnificent one after the other. Just the look of the place. I mean, you only have to look at the Doge's Palace, which is, you know, I'm sure everyone's seen pictures of it if they haven't been there, but this sort of pale pink sort of confection of a building just on the almost looking like it's floating in the air. And if you think that every other citadel or sort of center of power at the time is this, this, you know, fortresses, thick walls on mountaintops, you know, all about defence. But because Venice has this natural defence of the lagoon and being on the sort of river out of the, the high, you know, the sort of high land mass under the water, uh, it, all the defence was naturally there. So they could build these wonderful sort of light, airy places. Um, so 1510 was absolutely at the peak of kind of Venice's uh, sort of mastery over the world and riches, uh, you know, and wealth. And of course, it would start to slowly subside after this time because places like Amsterdam and Lisbon and, um, you know, the more Atlantic-facing cities uh, would, you know, essentially start leading the trade uh, because you know they find routes uh, yeah. across the world in South America. Sorry. And and all these uh, incredible palaces needed to be decorated inside with paintings and sculptures. And that um that takes us to your first scene. So can you tell us um what we're witnessing? So um we are in the workshop of uh Titian. Uh, or Tiziano, as uh, it's given this uh, Italian name, um, who was uh, obviously a sort of superstar painter of the uh, 16th century, um, had a very long, extremely productive uh, life. And he, he's a, a minor character in, in my novel, um, but he's, he was the student of uh, Giorgione, who is kind of my principal character, uh, who in turn was a student of uh, Bellini. Uh, Bellini was sort of, you know, the first really, there were many sort of Venetian paintings for him, but he was probably the, the most famous. There were actually two Bellini brothers. Titian would have also worked in Bellini's workshop uh, as a very young man. And um, 
but I'm having the scene I'm setting is, is Titian has struck out on his own. He's taken a workshop um, in the German Merchants Federation building, which is this great big white palazzo uh, near the Rialto. And he's produced this painting, um, which is in the National Gallery, uh, which is kind of most commonly known as a, a portrait of a man with a quilted sleeve. And it's, it's, a, it's a, just a stunning painting of a, of a sort of a nobleman sort of peering over his shoulder at the viewer uh, and at the front taking, you know, nearly half of the picture is this enormous sort of Prussian blue quilted sleeve just sort of coming right out at you. And, uh, you know, it was it, it was his sort of first great painting in a real sort of calling card to the world. It was just presenting something that was just dynamic and dramatic uh, and really celebratory of sort of Venice's wealth and status. It was also sort of almost it kind of sort of wryly amusing as well. Uh, atmospheric you know it was just a, a a new it was part of a new type of painting that was happening um and the venetians you know they were very different so you know we have bellini then we have giorgioni and then we have titian and eventually we'll have veronese uh tintoretto uh and how they differed from the the, the florentines by which i mean i suppose michelangelo and leonardo and Raphael. Uh, but they weren't necessarily from Florence, but you know, we'll call them the Florentine painters. They were very much about line, about the body, about uh, you know, the soul of a person, you know, just starting from those points, it was all about just how does the body work, you know, and then build up from the person outwards. And the Venetians were very much coming from a position that it was colour, not line, it was atmosphere, it was landscape it was the mood and feel of a place uh, and that's what they brought to to painting and titian you know became the sort of chief exponent of this uh of the idea of of, of kind of mood and atmosphere color is a, a huge plays a huge role in um in your book and so can you just talk a bit about the different pigments and because yes. um, also of course in those days you couldn't go and buy a tube of paint you had to buy the actual minerals and then grind them and prepare them in a very yeah. specific way so can you just tell us a bit about that because I think it, it's so fascinating yeah so um I mean the book essentially is all about uh color um but uh at its most basic level you know it had to be sourced from somewhere and then sort of turned into to pigment and mostly um and you had you know group i mean a workshop could take could contain 60 people and you know five of them could be sort of sourcing colors at any given time so mostly uh you know there were minerals so the the star of the renaissance was uh lapis lazuli which only came from one part of Afghan afghanistan and it produced ultramarine, which literally means from across the sea. Um, so it was kind of the most sort of sumptuous and, and sort of treasured uh, pigment of the time. But then, you, you know, you had more sort of formal uh, blues, uh, cobalts and azurite, uh, and these were grind down to make blues. 
you had malachite and verdigris, the greens, porphyrite, hematite uh, made reds. So those were the minerals, but then also you source colors from the natural world. So you, for example, you know, peach stones could be ground to make blacks or uh, uh, pepper seeds, you know, the seeds you get in kind of red peppers, uh, you know, they made a very distinctive color. There were berries, there were flowers, but there were also living things. There were insects produce certain colors, you know. And wasn't, wasn't there a beetle that you could grind up to make absolutely, a red yeah, color? Beetle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then most interestingly, I find um, actually seashells and mollusks. Mm. So Tyrian purple, for example, um, which is this sort of wonderful deep purple that kind of gave its name, uh, you know, that was used, you know, was the most special color for, for Romans, for example, because it was kind of used on, on the sort of emperor's, uh, a strip of it on the emperor's garment uh, toga. And that was only found on a certain seashell from, from, uh, from Tyre, you know, from the shores around Tyre. Um, and so this seashell was sourced, ground down, and this very specific purple produced. So, yeah, so the, the world of the book is all about finding a colour more amazing than all the ones I've just described. That's just, and what, why Venice was so incredible was that all the colours kind of came through it first. I mean, particularly the minerals. So obviously, lapis lazuli, you know, from Afghanistan, it would have found its way, you know, across the Arabic peninsula and then, you know, from Constantinople to, to and it would come straight to Venice. So if you imagine that, you know, the, the docks of Venice were just this sort of, this, the, you know, treasure trove arriving every day, these ships arriving with these sort of minerals from the east and, and north from Africa. But so, also the idea that the painting is valuable because it's a painting and a lot of work has gone into it. But, but the actual thing the painting is made of is also valuable, which I suppose is was the same with manuscripts because a lot of them use gold leaf and that kind of thing. But that's kind Absolutely. of interesting yeah, idea that perhaps we've lost a bit in the modern world with with painting. I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm wrong. No, that's a, you know, it's a, <clears> such <throat> an interesting thought. And it's one that I hadn't thought of, that it, it actually the raw materials of a painting are in, in themselves incredibly valuable. I mean, it's like people putting gold leaf on food these days. <laughs> yeah, on steaks. <laughs> yeah. Um, wonderful. Well, you mentioned briefly then um, the other, the alternative school of art in Italy at that time, which was, of course, known as the Florentine School. But um, it, it was that they, the, the, the artists worked all over the place. So can you take us to your second scene? Because I believe we're going to go to Rome um, to witness the painting of one of the most famous paintings. Ever. Yes. So, um so obviously, um, talking about the Sistine, the painting of the Sistine uh, Chapel, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which was taking place at this time. And again, Michelangelo uh, appears in the book uh, very briefly, um, who's also come in search of this colour. Uh, he's come from Rome uh, from this four-year job. Uh, and, you know, he was not the obvious choice. And I should just say, this is so... You know what had the other thing that drawn me to this year is that we have all these great artists working at the same time. So we have Michelangelo, we have Leonardo, uh, we have Raphael, 
we <clears throat> we have Giorgioni, Lorenzo, Lotto, and then Dura, Hieronymus Bosch, all these other. So all these artists are working uh, at, at the same time. Um, and Michelangelo, and they're all chasing the same jobs. And, you know, there, there is no bigger or, or greater job uh, than the sort of working on the sort of the Pope's own. You know, if you're not working for the Pope, it needs to be for an emperor. Uh, the, uh, the 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 sort of the center of the of the Catholic world, uh, uh, and and remember at this time, um, uh, St Peter's essentially had been knocked down and was going to be rebuilt in the form that we know it. Um, so the Sistine Chapel was the sort of the private, uh, the private chapel of the Pope, uh, and Michelangelo won the commission to to paint the ceiling, and he was not a uh, you know, he was not necessarily a painter by trade. He was much more famously known as a sculptor. Uh, and uh, he produced the sort of astonishing Pieta, uh, which was uh, sort of dead Christ in, in, in Mary's arms. Um, when he, you know, when he was, I think, 23 or 24. Uh, and this were really just you know, was like something you'd never seen. And if you imagine art just once, you know, you're, you're at art at that time, it's just, it's all about living the moment, living the sort of the tragedy of Christ, but really, really understanding, you know, the reality of, of what happened to make those stories come true. Uh, and his, his Pieta absolutely did that. It was, you know, this, this is a sort of dead, being in Mary's back. So um, he got the commission and, you know, painting the Sistine Chapel, it, 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 when, you know, this was an impossible task. You're up a scaffold for, you know, for four years uh, and Michelangelo specifically didn't really, I mean, the word goes that he shunned quite a lot of help that other people would have. He liked to do everything himself. He liked to mix his own paint himself. He liked to grind it all. I don't know if all of this is true, but he he did a lot himself. He wouldn't have had sort of a vast army of assists. And you have to remember being up a scaffold was an extremely dangerous and complicated thing in itself. I mean, you were living with a sort of fear that it could collapse any time and you would sort of tumble down to hit the kind of stone floor um but also lying down paint i mean wasn't so that how he painted lying on his back and then the so paint you're lying down you're, you're painting large areas and of course you can't just keep stepping back and having a look at it <laughs> you have to sort of you have to really know in your you know in your mind's eye exactly whether it's working or not you're dealing with unstable you know you're dealing with brick and stone where um well and uh, wet plaster because it's a fresco isn't it so exactly. he's probably getting tricks uh, and, in his you know, eye if you get the 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 plaster sort of if it dries too quickly or too slowly it affects the paint so you have all these sort of variables to think about and you've literally got paint dripping in your eye you know all day long yeah uh, and it's extremely uncomfortable and difficult and just hard hard to gauge so he he his face would have been absolutely kind of ruined and i describe him in the book and you know he can barely see because he's had so much paint go into his face that you know he's sort of he's forever having kind of eye infections and 
Um, yeah, I love that scene in your book when he's in Venice and he bumps into Giorgione in the pub, essentially, and is <laughs> is extremely unpleasant. And I wondered how much evidence is there for him being, I mean, he is sort of known famously, isn't he, as being a, quite an unpleasant yeah, I, character. I, think, I mean, it's very interesting comparing him to Leonardo, you know, who was this sort of uh, very warm, very amusing, very humorous, you know, full of stories uh you know sort of very very social person uh and michelangelo was just incredibly sort of introverted and just sort of obsessed with his work uh and um you know he was sort of jealous he was mean you know he didn't like spending a lot of money on people he was ungenerous to people uh and i think that is that is well documented um you know, he he sort of got into fights with everyone, you know, and uh, tellingly, he was never really happy with what, you know, he never did enough. He never got what he exactly what he wanted, you know. Um, he never felt fully fulfilled, you know. There was always, he could have always done it bigger or better, in his opinion. Um, he didn't even get exactly the jobs he wanted. I mean, he even, you know, famously argued with his kind of main patron, which was Pope Julius, uh, you know, who commissioned him to to paint the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, he, I think he, he, you know, he was sort of not a sort of not someone you wanted to be sitting next to at a dinner party. No, and I think that's a it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? But but between that his personality and his lack of personal um contentment and the astonishing art that he left yeah. behind him it, it you know looking at the Sistine Chapel ceiling you wouldn't it wouldn't be your first thought that the person that had managed to paint that would have had that, that, that must have been an interesting tension that he wasn't even a painter you know he wasn't yeah, yeah. being a painter uh and to paint on that scale it it, it it sort of defied the belief, but he already shown that he could, you know, David, um, the sculpture of David, yeah. you know, which was hewn from one enormous piece of marble that had been sort of hanging around for ages and no one knew quite what to do with, to sort of magic from that, this, this astonishing uh, monument that, you know, has just still seared into just about everyone in the world kind of mm. well he must have had enormous physical strength and obviously huge strength of determination and personality at the same time Absolutely, yeah the determination particularly because i don't think he was physically he wasn't sort of physically a great person and besides which you know he did you know he was he did not lead lead a healthy life just no his obsession with his work Venice instantly brings to mind a rich palette of colours. The glittering golden mosaics of St Mark's Cathedral, the turquoise of the lagoon, the jewel-like tones of Murano glass. To pick up the threads of Damien's exhilarating novel, why not join our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours, on their departure to Venice in March next year. This trip explores the city's churches, palazzi and galleries, to understand the development of Venetian power as expressed through art and architecture. Visits include the famed Galleria dell'Accademia, where you can stand in front of Giorgione's enigmatic La Tempesta, a painting much admired by Lord Byron, 
who described Giorgione's works as truth and beauty at their best. Ace Cultural Tours pride themselves on their expert-led art history tours in Italy, with other itineraries for 2023 following in the footsteps of Palladio and Piero della Francesca and taking in cultural riches in Naples, Bologna and Puglia. Learn more about ACE's schedule by visiting their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their friendly sales team on 01223-841-055. His personality contrasts really strongly with the personality of Giorgione, who I believe we are going to meet in the third scene. And he's a very mysterious character. I don't think we actually do know an awful lot, do we, about um, what kind of a person he was. But you, um, he's the central character in your book, and you paint him, if I can use the pun, as just the most wonderful person. I mean, someone you really would want to hang around with, extremely empathetic yeah. and um, yeah. and kind. And um, so can you take us to our third scene, please? Well, the, the third scene, he dies tragically young. Uh, and the book is essentially the last month that likely has no but, idea. But that's a, that's a big part of his um, mystique, isn't it? Because he he didn't produce many paintings in in his life. Um, yeah. So and he was thirty three, maybe thirty two. He had and died own, tragically too young. Yeah, he had his own workshop. He, as I said, he was uh, he was a student of Bellini. Of the, well, the, the Bellini brothers. There were two of them. He, you know, established his own studio and he himself had, you know, a, a quite, you know, a decent amount of success in his, in his short career. He painted the Doge, which, uh, you know, when he was 24, which is, you know, a, a, a huge achievement in himself. Uh, and that propelled him into having his own workshop. So he would have had, uh, I mean, in the book, I describe it only as as about 10 people in his workshop, but these workshops could have contained up to sort of, you know, 50 or 60 people doing different uh, jobs from, you know, making brushes to sort of preparing the paints to, you know, the timber, the canvases and so on. Um, and yeah, so little is known about, about him, apart from the fact that he died when he did, that we know that for a fact because someone tried to buy uh, uh, the Isabella Despe who was a sort of patroness of the arts, tried to buy one of the, his paintings. You know, she sort of snuck in there straight after she died and tried to get this painting cheap. Um, and, um, and so we know he died in October of 1510. Uh, and we know he was tall, hence his name, George Only, Big George, uh, and possibly striking looking, um, you know, because there are some paintings that may or may not be self-portraits. And we know he was born in Castelfranco, which is a little town um, in the Veneto, you know, 10 or 20 miles from, from Venice, well, probably more than that, 30 miles maybe from Venice. And uh, he did the altarpiece there. And we know what about his paintings. And of course, he, in my opinion, he really did sort of change the course of painting. Um, he learned a lot from Bellini. He learned about colour, uh, but it was kind of in his blood, I think, anyway. And some people say he was the first person to sort of paint an actual 
landscape painting. Um, his probably his most famous painting is is La Tempesta, the Tempest, uh, which is in the Academia, uh, and no one has ever really worked out what it is. But there's 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 a sort of underneath this sort of tor this sort of tempestuous sky where there's a sort of ribbon with a sort of lightning bolt. There are two uh, figures, uh, and it really is mysterious as as his life in a way. Uh, there's there's one uh, woman uh, kind of nude with a baby, uh, sucking a baby, and um, there's a there's a, a traveler or a soldier on the other side of the painting. And no, there are so many kind of kind of hypotheses for what the painting is about, but no one has really. But more than anything, it is about a mood. It's about an atmosphere. It's about a moment. You really feel this summer sky, the heat of that summer, this sort of storm about to break. Um, and it's much more about the landscapes than the figures, which is what I, I think kind of marks it out as this sort of pivotal moment in painting. I think there's about 20 or so canvases that, that survive. Uh, which is a sort of tiny amount. I mean, given that sort of Titian went on to live into his 70s, I think Bellini at the time of the book was already 80 years old and still painting. So uh, it, it was a sort of cruel, you know, cruel act of faith that, that he lost his life so young because I, I genuinely think he would have, uh, you know, produced just incredible masterpieces. Uh, and you know, essentially, Titian took the baton from him and very much uh, ran with it, um, uh, of taking the idea of, of kind of mood and the atmosphere, and particularly of color and what color could do to a painting, and how color could make you feel the emotional effect of color. Uh, and we still feel, you know, we feel so. You know, I've noticed since I've kind of written about color. Uh, you know, the sort of, you could almost say the beginning of colour in art. Uh, and remember as well, this was almost, you know, in Italy anyway, oil paint was still a relatively new way of painting. I mean, obviously it'd been around the, 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 the sort of in the, in the Netherlands, you know, they, they'd been, and I could sort of use oil paint and what have you. But it, it, it was still, you know, in its first sort of decades of sort of, proper use, you know, because most painting had been done with tempera up until this point. And oil can really capture colour in a can way. Can you just can you just tell us what tempera is for people that aren't sure? But tempera is it, it was the way of painting before oil and it sort of uh, involved mixing kind of uh, egg and water. Uh, and pigment uh, to create the paint, but it was very unstable. So it was essentially a water-based paint, for lack of a better way of putting it, it was like a sort of a watercolor or gouache or something. So oil, uh, it gave you this sort of veracity and this vivid nature to color. So you can really, you know, you, ha you have these incredible colors like ultramarine, and it would not only make them as vivid as they could possibly be those colors but it would also make those paintings last which is why we can now look at these paintings whereas you know sadly for example the last uh, the, the last supper you know which is uh, you know painted on a wall in in uh, in milan by da vinci you know that's so much of it is disintegrated being restored but you know not much of it's left 
if that had been painted as an oil canvas, uh, it, you know, it would be as kind of clear as the day it was painted. My my Giorgione, because so little is known about was known about him. I you know I created this person. I mean, I just had this feeling from looking at this painting. Obviously, no one wants to write you know a hero who's sort of. I mean, I don't want to write about a hero who's kind of a nasty person. Um, uh, in a way, all the you know, it's not undramatic because he he he's in such a dramatic situation in this book, trying to find this color and pull into this. But he'd he'd already got this slightly cultish status, hadn't he? Even just after he died, because the the story about Isabella d'Este and she tries to buy the painting, and she's told it's not you can't you know it's 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 not available for any amount of money. Is that is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, I, I think. I I think that was the case, but I actually, I think she couldn't get hold of it, yes. But I can't remember who actually stopped her. Um, but um, yeah, he, he was, he was, you know, he was an important figure, very important figure. Uh, and um, I mean, to use another pun, <laughs> he has been slightly painted out of history. Um, and a, a lot of it is actually to do with Titian, you know, because Titian was, uh, you know, there's a line in the book which was, which was like first, first student, then collaborator, and then Victor. So basically, Titian was Giorgione's student, and then they collaborated together. Uh, but Titian, even one of the things they collaborated, Titian managed to get his name put on it, and sort of Giorgione taken off. You know, in particular, they. They did. They painted the whole of the German Federation building that I described at the beginning, uh, and so I, I think the succession of Titian, who, who then led to Veronese and Tintoretto and so on, um, meant that sort of Giorgione became slightly forgotten over over the centuries. Um, and I, you know, those in the know, those who really follow a Renaissance painting, they will all know him. Um, uh, but, uh, and do you uh, think that goes back to the thing of the personality of the artist? So perhaps Giorgione was just someone who was more gentle, not so pushy, where Titian was more ambitious. And, you know, I mean, it was, as you said, it was a cutthroat world. You, they were all competing for the same patrons and the same commissions. So, I mean, how I painted Giorgione is he's extremely motivated. He's very ambitious. But yes, he, he doesn't. He, he, you know, it won't be at all costs. He's whereas, not cutthroat. No, uh, I mean that's how I have it. I mean, perhaps he does. I don't know. I mm. don't like to think so. Um, but I think Titian very much was. I think Titian was a very. He was a charming man. He wasn't like Michelangelo. He, you know, he. But his eye was always on on the prize. Yeah, yeah. and he was always pushing forward. And you know, he very charmingly just pushed everyone else out the way. <laughs> well, I think it's wonderful that you've written a book about Giorgione because he he is this extremely mysterious, magical person in the history of art. And as you say, you know, because of his short life and um, he he's, hasn't got the same position that he perhaps should have. I mean, at that time there was, as we've discussed, there's a lot of competition because there were so many amazing artists working in Italy at that time. Um, but I think it's I should, wonderful. I should to... just say, because obviously you talked about the moment, you know, of, of his actual death, because it was, uh, you know, it's almost um, he died of the plague. 
uh, and in the book, this is sort of described as you know your uh, you know obviously we've all lived through it in the last uh, two years, but um, you know Venice in particular, you know because of all the boats coming in, um, the plague was this ever present threat, uh, and you know it went into lockdown all the time uh, whenever there was a, a, a kind of a threat of it. Uh, and it's almost certain that he, you know, was one of the sort of unlucky people of that time. Uh, so yeah. his death is very sudden, uh, and he's really kind of, you know, absolutely uh, in the sort of the, the real sort of booming time of his career, uh, and he's cut short at that time. Yeah, it's a real tragedy. So uh, it must be this must be a very difficult question for you, but if you could have picked something up from one of these moments that we visited and kept it for yourself and brought it yeah. back with you to the present, uh, what would it be? So I'm going to choose um, one of Giorgione's paintings, which I know as a knight and groom, the knight and his groom, uh, which is actually in the Uffizi in Florence. And it's, actually, it's a sort of much larger painting than you think, because often paintings that period were quite small. There's uh, there's a man uh, being helped into his armor uh, by his by his young groom, uh, and they're about to obviously go off to war. And it has this there's a sort of an, an emotional element in that. It's a sort of a, it's a beautiful kind of snapshot, uh, you know. And that that was the other thing about Giorgione is that he was a sort of almost an impressionist painter, you know, sort of three hundred years before the Impressionists, you just get this snapshot. So you can feel it's early morning, you can sense the light coming through the door from the morning. And it sort of reflects on the armor of the of this uh, soldier. And he's, he's kind of looking towards the viewer and he, he's looking, you know, um, sort of quizzically, he's sort of trying to be strong, but you get the sense that there's more going on underneath. Uh, and the, and um, the groom, um, his 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 sort of steward uh who's helping him into the armor is this young boy uh and both of these characters are are uh, you know because often the the members of the the workshop model for these pictures and almost certainly these the these the, the characters in this painting would have been probably uh members of Giorgione's workshop and the boy is based on on Ugo who is the uh, sort of very very funny amusing charming boy who sort of mans the front door of the of the workshop uh and you know he and George only have a very sort of touching relationship and because George only often you know he he's he feels very uneasy about the fact he hasn't kind of started a family yet and he's he's always in, been in search of that and it just kind of hasn't happened and his relationship with this boy is is very much like a sort of father-son tight relationship um so i i would take that painting because it it it, it has me it's meant a lot to me mainly because i've written it to mean a lot to me but but it's also a stunning <clears throat> beautiful painting very arresting um, um, well i think that's a wonderful choice you you couldn't do better than that um damien thank you so much i've really enjoyed our trip to renaissance italy today it's been a real pleasure thank you no, not at all. I, I love that. I love talking about it uh, as much as learning about it. That was me, Violet Muller, 
talking to Damien Dibbon the other day about his new novel, The Colour Storm, which is a brilliant depiction of the life of the artist Giorgione. It is available now in all good bookshops, and you can find images of some of Giorgione's stunning paintings on our website, tttpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.